Welcome, everybody. This is the Rotary E-Club of Silicon Valley. Every week, we bring you the words and stories and experiences of people who are making the world a better place, locally, globally, and digitally. We're part of Rotary International, 1.4 million Rotarians and Rotaractors and tens of thousands of clubs all over the planet. And we like to pool our energies and talents and, and interests in such a way that we can find ways to speak to that motto that we have, which is service above self. One of the ways that people have been orienting their speech to each other over the last seven months uh, in particular is in discussion about AI, artificial intelligence, and, and all that has changed with regard to common perceptions of that with the release of ChatGPT by OpenAI on November 30th of last year. This has generated all sorts of interesting questions about all sorts of things. And consequently, when I recently read an article that uh, included multiple quotes from Professor Eric Goldman of Santa Clara University, I decided, hey, I will see if this guy is willing to talk to us. And he is. Additionally, he's kind enough to say, feel free to call me Eric. And Eric, it is such a pleasure to have you. I'm excited to hear about, uh, about your, your topic, uh, AI and IP, and I hand the mic over to you. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thanks for including me. It's a great honor to be a part of uh, the Rotary conversation, um, especially on such an important topic that everyone wants to talk about. Um, but I'm going to start by explaining why it's such a difficult conversation to have. There uh, is just a, a lot of confusion on this topic, and let me explain why. The first is because we don't have a single uniform definition of what artificial intelligence or AI means. There's many different possible meanings of, of that. And without a shared definition, we often just talk right past each other. We could be talking about something that's very mechanical, like spell check on our, our Word document, or we could be talking about something like murderous drones uh, that are uh, acting without any human oversight. And if we're not talking about the same thing, we're not going to regulate it in, a, in an appropriate manner because we're not even, we're not even sharing the same target of uh, concern. Um, and it's also become difficult to talk about AI regulation because of the fact that there's so many possible presses. Is this like machines or is this like speech or is this like, you know, humans, but in virtual form? And with all the different swirling analogies, people just like gravitate in one direction towards another that supports their best arguments, but doesn't actually help make sure that we're all talking the same thing. As a practical matter, we are already using AI every day in a broad sense of the word. So for example, I mentioned spell check is a form of AI or the predictive capabilities of Gmail to write our emails for us. Or when we work in a, a photo editor and it can do things like red eye reduction, these are all ways of generating content with the assistance of technology. And those are things we're doing today. And yet that's not what most people think of as AI, going back to definitional problem. And they think about something that is like the generative AI category. These are things that involve big data sets and then remix that content in a way that produces new outcomes that's something different than the inputs. And so generative AI is a special class of technology that we think is different from all these things that we're already using today, but because we're not sure how to analogize it, it, it leaves us somewhat uh, paralyzed. There are so many legal issues at play when it comes to AI. Pretty much there's not an AI law, there's just law, and it applies to AI in every facet. So AI is touching every legal doctrine. We're going to talk today about intellectual property, but that's just one of many areas of, of conversation that are going to need to happen. 
A lot of people don't really understand how AI or generative AI works. And of course, if they did, the technology is iterating very rapidly. And so we don't have a shared understanding of the thing that we're trying to discuss. Even we had a shared definition of what it is. And without that shared understanding, we're just talking past each other. The last thing I'm going to say is that we're having this conversation about the regulation of AI in a period of time when there's extreme paranoia about technology, sometimes called the tech lash here on the Silicon Valley. Um, but in general, the concern is that, that AI is going to be malevolent, not benevolent. It's going to hurt humanity somehow. And for people my generation older, we think of things like the HAL 9000 computer that was designed to, that, you know, was designed to help in humanity exploring space, but actually turns on its crew and kills them all, except for one. Or for those of you who remember the 1984 movie War Games, there was the movie Whopper, which, you know, comes this close to launching nuclear holocaust. And so we think about AI as trying to kill us. And what's weird in my circles is that people are hoping that intellectual property law is somehow going to save humanity. And that's just a fit mismatch between the concerns of intellectual property and the concerns about murderous AI. But if we're going to always think about murderous AI or AI that is ultimately malevolent towards humans, I think we're going to miss a lot of really important potential and we're going to design regulations that don't really fit the problem. Now, today's talk is going to focus on intellectual property and specifically copyright law. And there are three topics I'm going to address in my very limited time. Uh, the first topic is who owns works that are created by uh, machines? The second is does training the machines constitute copyright infringement? And then the third is, do the outputs of the machine constitute copyright infringement? And all of these areas are under rapid legal development today. So I'm going to give you the snapshot circa July 2023. Uh, you check back later and it could very well be different. Now today, let's talk about who owns AI-generated works. Our U.S. Copyright Office has taken a very clear and unambiguous position. No one does. If the machines prepare the work, then they are public domain, free for everyone to use. And they're really doubling down on this topic with each time they touch it. So, for example, they have said human authorship is a prerequisite to copyright protection in the United States. If the humans aren't creating the work, then it does not qualify for copyright protection. They've gone on to say that if the humans are interacting with the machines, there's some iterative play between the two, that the, author, the, the users are not authors of a generative AI for copyright purposes of the images that technology generates because the specific outputs cannot be predicted by the users. Now, this might be different from something like spell check or the red-eye reduction that I talked about as earlier examples of ways in which machines help us prepare content today. When we use those, we expect to know how they're actually going to produce uh, the output. But when it comes to generative AI, the copyright office's position is you give an input, you don't know exactly what you're going to get. And as a result, it cannot qualify for copyright protection, even if the human is in constant interaction or dialogue with the machine. And then finally, the copyright office's position is that not only is it not do, does machine produced works not qualify for copyright protection, but we as humans have a burden to tell the copyright office when works are going to um, be prepared by humans and when they're prepared by the machine. Now, this is a on the honor system. Um, I trust Rotarians are always telling the truth, but we know that some applicants probably will not and will probably get away with it. But this shows you the Copyright Office isn't just saying humans own copyrights, machines cannot. They're saying, tell us which parts 
of the work that you're submitting are machine prepared so that we can say those don't qualify for copyright protection. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of things that have not qualified for copyright protection because the copyright office said they were prepared by machines. The, the, the image on the left was prepared using um, a generative AI. If it had been prepared by humans to look exactly like this, it would have clearly qualified for copyright protection. The fact that the, the applicant discloses repair the machines meant that it was not eligible. Similarly, on the right, we have a situation uh, where there was a basically a graphic novel prepared through multiple hundreds of interactions between the human and the, the generative AI. The copyright office said, knowing that you're in this dialogue with the, the generative AI means that the output becomes not copyrightable. If it had been drawn by a human hand, it would have been copyrighted. Let me turn to the next topic, which is whether or not training the uh, generative AI uh, models constitutes copyright infringement. In order for the uh, generative AI models to learn, they have to ingest lots of copyrighted material so that they can then understand the corpus of knowledge in the past so that they can then figure out how they would express it in the future. Now, this sounds scary to a lot of copyright owners, but in practice, actually, we already have dealt with this issue. So, for example, if you think about how Google search engine works, what it does is it indexes lots of existing works on the Internet, puts them into a database, and then searches that database to mine it for things that it thinks are relevant to the searcher. Google took that one step further with a, a, um, a technology called Google Books where they scanned copyrighted books, ingested them into a database, and then searched the database for the relevant queries that someone's looking and provided previews of the copyrighted work that contained results that were relevant to the search. And when that was challenged under copyright law, the court said that Google's unauthorized digitizing of copyright-protected works, creation of search functionality and display of snippets from those works are not infringing fair uses. And then they explain the reason why it qualified for fair use, because it was highly transformative, the public display of text is limited, and the revelations do not provide a significant market substitute for the protected aspects of the originals. Google's commercial nature and profit motive do not justify denial of fair use. Now, when you reach fair use, it means that there was copyright infringement, but we excuse it from a social standpoint because we're getting something important to society as a result. Fair use gives us the breathing room to say not every copy um, is going to be legally actionable because of the social benefit. And basically, the court said Google Books as a database was so valuable to us, it added so much value to the ecosystem that it qualified for the protection of fair use. And I think that that's going to be true with respect to generative AI. If the outputs are non-infringing, then all of the steps along the way to prepare those outputs will qualify for fair use. So the only question then is, are the outputs infringing? A thing I'll talk about in my very short remaining time. But if they are not infringing, then, then everything else is clear. And in fact, the generative AI is a better case study uh, than the Google Books because of the fact that um, many times the outputs will not only be non-infringing, they won't actually copy the uh, any aspect of the original. Google Book provided the snippets that previewed the copyrighted work, but many times generative AI goes out of its way not 
to replicate the anything that's in its source material, but to come up with something that might be a su- summary or, or 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 paraphrase, but still expresses it in a different way. So I think that if anything, there's a better case for fair use than in the Google Books context, which means that that's actually a really strong position for the copyright owner, uh, for the um, uh, generative AI um, uh, model trainers. There has been a lot of litigation on this question. We've gotten a couple of preliminary rulings. There's somewhat irresolute. There was a recent case, Doe versus GitHub, where the, the copyright owners claimed that the output was identical to the inputs because it was software code. Now, those of us familiar with code would say, that's not surprising. They're often limited or, or only one way to express a certain type of code, um, depending on what type of functionality you're trying to accomplish. But if that were true, then it might not qualify for the Google Books type of analysis because the output replicated the input and therefore wouldn't qualify. Another case that just recently came out, Anderson versus Tibbilly, yeah, the course was like, I'm not seeing the problems here. I'm going to likely dismiss um, most or all of this case. Um, the last thing I'm going to mention is whether or not the output's infringed. You could tell in the Doe versus GitHub case, that's a central question. Now, the plaintiffs haven't shown that they actually suffered the copying of their work, so they just claimed it, but they have to prove it. But we should note that there are many times in which works might evoke the original and still not be infringing. So, for example, copyright law does not protect genres or styles. So uh, there's a type of genre of uh, literary work. So there's type of artistic styles. So if you go to a gender of AI and say, I would like an image in the style of a famous artist, producing something in that style is not copyright infringement by its very nature. The copyright law doesn't protect styles. Or if you say, I would like a poem in the style of a particular author, the fact that it might be in the same genre and have some of the, the, the same attributes doesn't suggest that it constitutes an infringement of any of the expressive works that were originally eligible for copyright protection. So one of the reasons why I'm so confident about the training data not being copyright infringement is because I think that very rarely the outputs will be infringing, especially if we understand that styles and genres aren't copyrightable uh, in the first instance. So I'm going to take my break there. You can tell that this is super complicated and we just have like barely scratched the surface. And you can see why I said it's dynamically changing because literally all these assets are being litigated today. Fantastic, Eric. Thank you so much for, for that presentation now. And, and thank you also for addressing the style question as, as part of the presentation. That was, that was very much where I was thinking as, as you talked about some of these pieces. Uh, but in, in looking at this and in starting our, our q and I'm, I'm curious if there, actually, I'm surprised that there is so little ambiguity in in the caseload about this so far. Where where would you say the real complex questions seem to be falling at the moment? So I'm not sure which aspect you want to talk about, but let's talk about the training data because that's where the, the most litigation activity is taking place. Most lawsuits have just been filed in the last few months, so they're at the very beginning stages. So we're going to get a mountain of new precedent in this area over the next months and years. But that's the way the legal system works. You had mentioned that when the latest iteration chat GPT came out, it really rocked people's worlds. And that's what has spurred plaintiffs to start um, uh, suing. They were less concerned with prior iterations, but now they're becoming increasingly concerned. Of course, we know things like the, the Hollywood strikes about the actors and the writers 
because they're they're very concerned about their their long-term economic prospects. And so basically so much of the litigation we're seeing today reflects this 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 fundamental concern that there's going to be some major economic winners and losers from the transitions towards generative AI and the people who feel at risk are are going to be pushing every legal every legal angle they can. All right. So in thinking about educational uses of generative AI, one of the things that I talk about when I'm training teachers has to do with, with personalizing the kind of content that students uh, are, are exposed to. So if, if you think about the kinds of things that, that students encounter in, in school, the stories that are in their textbooks may be about a very select group of places, LA, New York, maybe a couple. And so to be able to tell an AI, you know, maybe you live in some small town called small town. And you say, you know, write, write a two page short story about two middle schoolers who have this adventure on this street, this street in small town state. And, you know, it has to do with this and this and this in order for the, the content to be relative to the, or relevant to those students. Right. In doing things like that, is, is it, is it, Pretty much clear that there are no IP issues in place uh, that that fair use, both from the case law and from the standpoint of how it's being used for educational purposes, means that this is a totally clear move for uh, teachers and students to pursue. Uh, so I must confess, I'm I'm having kind of a nostalgic flashback to the '70s when I was a kid. I remember that my mom got me a book that had been personalized to me. And at the time that was like magic. Now, of course, we know that there was, you know, a, a book that a script that had been coded and there were just blanks for specific fields that, that my mom was able to fill out about, you know, the name of our pets and the name of friends and the address that we lived in, all which then got printed into a book. But to me, that was like magic. And it spoke to me in a way that the non-personalized books never did. And I think what you're riffing on is really the fact that there's this potential for a whole new class of creative works to be generated that are going to solve the needs of particular audiences or communities in a great way that might not have been possible or might have been uh, just cost ineffective to do without the assistance of the machines. And so from my perspective, I think we should stop for a moment, recognize that that kind of creativity is the stuff that we should be excited about, even knowing that there's going to be some people who are going to feel diminished in the transition generative AI. There'll be other artists and other content creators who are going to do new and important things that we have not yet seen that will ultimately, I think, make uh, other communities better. So it's not like it's a clear loss for society when we have generative AI working. It just is different. Now, with respect to the copyright element of the, that question, generally, I'd just start with the premise that if the outputs are not infringing, then whatever was done to gain the training data in order to enable the example you gave, this personalized story that's custom to a geography, would be completely permissible under copyright law. So, you know, just it doesn't really matter then, so long as the outputs are non-infringing. And the example you gave, I think most of the time that story would not be infringing or certainly does not have to be infringing. And so odds are it's going to be completely kosher under copyright law. All right. So so in in thinking about this, we, we keep coming back to the idea of the, the data that uh, was used to pre-train the model in order to generate the kind of output that uh, one of these tools barred you know, ChatGPT might, right? 
And so is it the case that if someone using the kinds of technology that, that underpin, you know, a chat GPT or, or a BARD, they're using that technology when it is trained on very specific bodies of information. So, so you can imagine a, an, a, a generative AI tool that's been built solely on a single person's writing. And, and I, would, I would assume that that would be a very difficult thing to do, just given that you're, you're going from here to here in terms of the training data. But does that generate a new question related to IP with, with regard to how the courts might see it? So you've got a bunch of hypothetical assumptions in there that I want to pull out for a moment that might make that question not really where the action is going to be. So for example, in order for the generative AI models to work, they generally need large sets of data. So if they're not getting large sets of data, they just don't work very well. Mm -hmm. And if it was so specific to a particular individual and that was all that was done for the training, there might, it might not be economic to do that. It just like, there just might not be a clear profit pathway uh, forward on that. The more likely scenario is that lots of content creators are all ingested into the same model and then the query or the, the, you know, the extraction from that model focuses on one particular person and then is basically becoming competitive with that person's work. And that, I think, is very likely to occur. But that's not because the training data was customized. It's just because of the fact that there's enough material in the training data to be able to come up with an output that is sounds like or, you know, in the style of or the genre of the person who uh, is the target of those efforts. Um, and so... That's why I think that it's hard to come up with a scenario that we're likely to see in practice where we're going to have that kind of targeted training data. And I don't think we need it. Having said that, then I still take position, even if someone is able to create an output that's in the style of or in the genre of someone who's currently alive, of all their works are eligible for copyright protection. And now you have a new competitor that is preparing works that look and set or sound like the person who is trying to make a money, you know, living off of their existing work. That's where I think we have an economic displacement or possible economic consequences problem. That may not be a copyright problem. That might be a bigger issue than, than copyright can handle. Okay. You're, you're, you're very much heading in, in direction that, that I was, I was thinking about because there, there is a difference. There is some kind of difference between what is generated uh, in writing and what is generated in more artistic spheres, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking about things like that recent case where a, a, a particular artist, hip hop artist, I believe was, you know, like there was, there was a, a song generated that uh, was supposed to be in the style of this artist. And, you know, the, the position of the company was, look, that's becoming very popular very quickly. It's not clear that, that this isn't by our artist and therefore is it the case that that in thinking about art, we're 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 dealing with something that is fundamentally different than writing? So I'm sorry, just to be clear, you know, there's lots of writing that we would call art as well. So I'm gonna try and distinguish that. But I think what you're saying is that there's multiple modalities in which we as humans express ourselves. There's the written uh, art, and there's the visual art, and there and that can have multiple subcategories. There can be things like drawings, or there can be things like sculptures. And then there's the oral arts. There could be things like music. 
And then there's the video arts where there can be things like, you know, images that, that move, you know, in, in three, you know, in, you know, over time. And the generative AI models are tackling each of those different modalities, but the ways in which they tackle it might be slightly different. And there could be a potentially interesting differences from a legal or technical standpoint because of the fact that the different modalities have different attributes. Um, having said that, I don't really think that the fact that someone might do a sound alike is is all that particularly interesting from a legal standpoint. We do have sound alike cases in the in the pre-generative AI world. And sometimes those sound alike cases can be a problem under copyright law. Sometimes those can be a problem under publicity rights. Sometimes those could be a problem under trademark, not normally. And sometimes they're not a problem at all. And of course, there's one other aspect, you know, sometimes people characterize that as a privacy issue. Usually I think they really mean a publicity rights issue. But as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, there's a lot of law that is dropped on top of generative AI. And we have to work through all of that as a society. Having said that, I think that one could imagine lots of circumstances where things that sound alike or look alike to other types of precedent art would still be viewed as a win for society to have those created. And, you know, I think about all the the virtual, the, the, the virtual video that's been created that, you know, replicates existing, you know, well-known figures, but integrates them into a, a new context. Back in the day, it was Forrest Gump, but obviously there's been a lot more recent examples uh, since then. And we call that art too. It's, it is creative to do that. And there's value to doing that. There might be concerns about authenticity and there might be concerns about whether or not there should be compensation for it. But in general, we should acknowledge that could be a whole new genre of art that we're really excited about. And that takes us to places we haven't been before. Fantastic. Let's do one more question from those that have come in. And, and that question has to do with, with what, what has actually impressed you by studying this field. And, and so, so in, in encountering all kinds of different AI moments, right, wh whether they are actually specifically legal or not, there may be those things that, that really, really captured your attention from the perspective of like, oh my, I, I, it, it can do that, right? And as an example, as an educator, you know, I think about, oh my, oh my goodness, anybody wanting to learn English, you know, there's lots of people who, you know, are in English speaking areas, you know, they, they want to learn English. They now have a tireless tutor, right? Explain this to me in, in three to four paragraphs, write it in simpler language. All of these are, are the kinds of inputs that would allow a generative AI to very quickly give and, and give again and again and again all kinds of material in perfectly good English, right? And so as, as you have looked at the field, are there moments in looking at the, the different cases you've looked at or just in the discussions you've had that made you think, wow, this is just a new world we're in? There was a well-publicized incident where Allegedly, a job seeker was able to ask Generative AI to write a cover letter that was helpful to that job seeker uh, ultimately landing a job. Now, I have some issues about whether or not that's the, what the ethics might be in those circumstances when, when we really do want people to write their own cover letters. But if we could step back for a moment, you could think about how we set up these gatekeeping functions in our society for economic, you know, for, for employee labor. It says, you know, you can't get access to these jobs unless you jump through the right hoops. And if we could democratize that process and make it so that people can be recognized for their true talents, not for how they check out the box in the gatekeeping, 
that's a win for all of us, really, right? That creates a more efficient labor market that leads to you know people being able to deploy the skills they really have and to be able to then you know add to the overall functioning of society. Um, so when I saw a moment like that, it wasn't really about whether or not we want people to make up uh, cover letters on generative AI, but as a way of rethinking how we're going to allocate labor in our society, I got super excited. One other thing I'll mention is that I'm not an artist by nature or by training. I just have the ability to prepare artistic works. That's not who I am. That's not my gift. And uh, yeah, there are times I want to have images that I can include in my teaching materials for my students or in my blog posts where I'm trying to stuff to cover topics that I need a, 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 a you know, visual metaphor that would be helpful. And generative AI is like the magic solution for me because it makes it so that I can prepare these work. I don't have to go and try and find somebody else who did it and then go and get permission and ask them if I can use it or not find anything that describes what I'm trying to illustrate. I can literally go create it myself and I become an artist. And that reinforces the point that I think has been emerging in this conversation, which is that there's this new class of creative works that are coming that I think are going to be really exciting. And for me, the idea that it can make me a better teacher or can make me better at explaining things to my audience on my blog, that's a win for all of us. And so to me, I, I think, you know, making me into an artist is actually like, a truly, you know, magical feat if AI can do that. Wonderful. All right. Well, that seems a good place to go ahead and finish uh, before we finish the recording. Uh, I want to. I want to first thank all of you who have watched this recording or listened to it for taking your time to learn a little bit through the efforts that we have to inspire people around the world to think about new possibilities. We hope that you will do a couple of things if you are on our webpage. Uh, and that is to tell us you were here. There is an attendance uh, form just a little bit down the page. And at the bottom, there is our forum for sharing ideas. Feel free to add add comments in that forum or respond to what other people have said. We we welcome that opportunity in, in an online and asynchronous club to engage with you and, and your ideas. When we think about these topics, you you may well be in the space of like, I really want to know more about this. As always, in the description on our YouTube page or also just below the video on our webpage, you'll find links to learn more. And specifically, you can get to Eric's blog at blog.ericgoldman.org. And we hope you'll give that a look. As we always like to do, we hand it back to our speaker for the final word. And so, Eric, I hand the mic back to you. What would you like folks to be thinking as they finish up this, this video? Again, thank you for the opportunity to present. Uh, it's a great honor to have this conversation with you and your audience. The thing I'll just remind your audience is that the media has, has trained us to assume when new technology emerges, we need to think about the bad sides, the dark sides, the negative consequences that are following. And that is absolutely true. But we have to also leaven that with the opportunities that the new technology creates and that how it's going to create you know, potentially a better society. And AI has both concerns baked right into it. It creates some risks for many communities and for us as a society, things that we really didn't talk about. And it creates tons of opportunities. So before any of your listeners, audience members has this knee-jerk reaction to AI or the new iterations of it, oh my God, this sounds terrible. I encourage them to step back and say, but what are the opportunities? And we should fight for those. Thank you. Amen. And everyone, we will see you next week.